0: Well, good afternoon, everybody. I am very excited for this week's episode as we're going to be talking about architecture, specifically architecture as it relates to the industrial real estate market. And even more focused is going to be light industrial. So warehousing, distribution centers. Uh, And my guest is an awesome architect and just a really great guy. Uh, His name is Willem Kellerman. He's a principal and architect at a firm called Dialogue Design. And I originally had two architects from the same firm, uh, partners at the firm, uh, to come on. You might have uh, seen that thumbnail earlier. Uh, the other guest was Daryl Hallowell, but he's been feeling sick for the past few days. And he has some hiccups that just wouldn't go away. And he, he didn't want to come on the show when he was hiccuping through it. Uh, so unfortunately, uh, Daryl is not able to make it. But I am still very much so excited to, uh, to interview uh, Willem. And you might have seen that his name is uh, uh, spelled W i l l e m. Uh, well, Willem's actually from South Africa, and the pronunciation uh, uh, there is is Willem. So maybe we could we'll, we'll start by getting a little bit uh, from Willem on on how many times he's been called uh, Willem. Uh, I'm sure I was not the first to do it. Uh, but before we jump into that, I also have a special guest on uh, this show as well. I have my son, who's really the brains behind my YouTube channel, really. It's, uh, I, I try to to sound like I know what I'm talking about, but if it wasn't for all of his help in filming and doing some of the editing, uh, I wouldn't have the YouTube channel that we have today. So uh, he's, he's coming on uh, more specifically because he's actually interested in becoming an architect himself. So we uh, t- teed this up uh, several months ago that he'd be coming on and he's going to ask some of the questions about uh, an architect. And I think that'll actually really help frame the conversation. So we're going to jump into a number of topics about uh, things that you should look for in industrial properties, uh, how the process actually goes from taking raw land all the way to a finished property. We're going to go through a number of those things, but I, th- I think I it'll really be interesting to get Nolan's questions uh, for VILM at the beginning. Uh, so with that introduction, uh, Wyatt, if you could Please bring on Willem and my son, Nolan. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me on the call.
1: Hey, it's a it's an honor to be here. Like I got to meet Nolan a little bit before you. He seems like a really nice guy. He said he's going to ask me easy questions, so that's always good to know. Chad, thank you very much for being curious about uh, an architect's perspective on this. We don't get to talk about light industrial that often, and it's a very, very interesting piece of the architectural world. So it's going to be fun. I look forward to it.
0: Yeah. And I think it's it's such an important topic because your job as the, as the architect designing and planning these buildings, you're really the one that sets the the literal foundation for how these properties go up. So it, it really is an imperative Uh, part of the whole process of taking land uh, all the way to a finished building so I'm fascinated to jump into a number of of topics on that but I first want to get Nolan uh, who's diligently prepared a few questions uh, about architecture we're going to let him tee it off with a with a couple questions first so go ahead Nolan
2: Okay, so my first question is, do you more digitally design buildings nowadays, or do you still go over to using paper and pen to design your buildings?
1: Um, you know, I think uh, when, when you look at it, there's definitely uh, digital is where it's at these days. But i think the beauty of it is is uh, that we've just got more tools than we've ever had so uh, you know you keep the pen uh, you keep the the thinking you keep the paper uh you bring in a computer you bring in like you know wonderful tools that we have like uh, i'm not going to go down the virtual reality warren but um I, i think what's what's becoming really interesting about it is the way that we're able to connect the tools to reality a lot better than we've been able to so Digitally, if you're interested in digital aspect of things, there's a it's it's magic land at the moment. There's so many beautiful things and and uh, and programs and apps and it's easier than it's ever been. I, I kind of shudder when I think about what I used when when I started and what uh, what we did at university to get marks at that place. Very different from what it is today. A lot more sophisticated and. But a lot more fun because, um, you know, I think it's about bringing all those different mediums together. Whatever makes you think the best and whatever delivers the best outcome at the end of the day is what you should be using. So, uh, yeah, if you like drawing or you like computers more, there's uh, the threshold and the barriers aren't really there like they used to be back in the day. If you can't draw, you can't get in. It's, It's no longer like that. It allows you to think about things a lot better in different aspects. Nolan, how does that sound for an answer to a first question?
2: Yeah, that's a good answer because I know I'm not the best drawer, but I'm still decent. I feel like it will be both ways, but being more digital allows for it to be maybe even like easier to design the buildings and get more persistent, perfect outcome of what you want it to be like.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it becomes easier. Like at the end of the day, what we do for a living is communicate, right? Like, in, and uh, people used to use drawings as a as a very important piece of that communication piece. So if you're a good communicator, whether you're good at speaking, good at like whatever it is, it doesn't matter. We're in a business of communication, and that's that's really important to
2: understand. And you
1: sound like a good communicator, so I think you're off to a good step.
0: What's the next question you have, Nolan?
2: So the next question is how many people does it take to design like the average house, um, for every, like every project?
1: The average house. My goodness. A house takes like a lot more than you would think it does. Like, uh, houses are way much, way too much work. I'd rather, I'd rather much rather do light industrial projects like millions and millions of square feet of light industrial before I do a, a residence. But, um, you know, when I when I think about it, like at the end of a project, I always have this visual of, like, you know, at the end of a movie, when the script runs by and you see, like, what? The assistant had an assistant and this guy had a, this guy. And I just think it's really interesting uh, how many people it takes to be successful. And, uh, you know, it's kind of, uh, you know, tying it back to the light industrial world, Chad, you made a comment about, like, you know, kind of strange how... The, the, the brokerage and the architecture comes together so late in the game. And I think that's really um, uh, the, the sophisticated piece of what we're doing is like, you know, Nolan, starting with a question like you just did, is like, how many people does it take? Why do you need that many people? What is he going to do? You know, it's the same in our business. There's a couple of people that you really need to um, need to know and understand and respect for what they do because they're, they're a lot of really smart people that improve the outcome of a project and so if you're doing if i may just step away from the residence for a bit i'll come back to it um, but uh, just say like if you look at building a light industrial building uh, like at the middle of it we're just the connector of it, making sure that all these bits and pieces come together. We by no means like, you know, you, you made us sound really important in the beginning there, Chad, by saying we lay the foundation and everything. I'm always a little scared that my clients are listening to this and thinking I've got an exaggerated sense of self here. Um, we're really just moving information through the process. And so the people that you have to care about in our business are brokers. Uh, You know, the contractors, you have to worry about like your consultant team, who are those people, Uh, your client is very, very important, Uh, uh, who that is and understanding your client as well as you possibly can, the authority having jurisdiction, and then the users, the people that move into the building at the end of the day, because they're not always the same person, right? Even when you're building a house, some days you might decide like, I'm going to build a house because I want to sell the house. I want to build this house because this is my forever house and I can't get rid of this view and if I don't have it for the rest of my life I'm going to be super sad right um and and so when when you look at our business as being moving information between all those critical pieces there and making sure that we're speaking the right language when we're speaking to these different pieces right like if you're trying to Uh, Talk to the contractor about, um, you know, the importance of, well, actually, most of the contractors we talk to understand it probably better than I do. But, you know, just as an example, not everyone cares about the same thing as an outcome. And so what is it that the broker cares about at the end of the day or the or the or the agent? Uh, What is it that the landlord cares about at the end of the day? What is the property manager? Sorry, I left out property management in the in the beginning as well. What do the property managers care about, like in terms of the quality of what's out there and the usability of the building at the end of the day? So, you know, when you go back to um, to your house analogy, You know, it's probably really important to kind of get a broker on board early on. And I'm not just pandering to the crowd here, Chad. Um, This is actually how I think, Um, you know, get a sense of if I'm going to buy a house, like what am I looking at in terms of the neighborhood that I'm moving in? Where's the market going? What is the future potential? Because you're always putting money, um, you know, in service of something. And sometimes it's an investment for your children. And sometimes it's an investment for yourself or just to benefit yourself. So you start up by making a bit of a a bit of a plan, a game plan. And brokers are really good at helping you with that. The next person I will de- talk to very quickly is a couple of contractors that have built something in the area that you want to build. And so they can tell you about like, you know, if you do this, how much is going to cost, like what's the best way to build? What's the quickest way to build? and uh, you know at the same time like uh, i'm talking because i'm an architect like obviously i've i've got that guy already but he'd be one of the first people that i want to talk to too because i'd like to hear his opinion on what is a good way to live and like what what kind of information should i be providing to the contractor and and kind of build it up like that and then You know when you're building a house it's also really important to talk to your wife because she's uh, in my instance probably going to tell you exactly what it needs to be and we're good with that because i just happen to be married to an architect as well so we can we're not going to get into that uh, during this conversation but it's it's an interesting thing and um, if you want to know what it takes to deliver a successful project ask anyone that's ever renovated a kitchen in his own house And you will have the recipe for either success or disaster in that conversation. And so, you know, it scales up, it scales down. But just because it's big doesn't mean it's more difficult, right? Like if you look at what would be a more difficult project to deliver, a million square foot uh, warehouse or an 1800 square foot bungalow in suburbia. Uh, I would say the easy one is the is the light industrial because the intent is clear and you've got a sense of where it needs to be. Whereas with a house, you tend to deal with personal preferences and a whole bunch of stuff that you can't quantify at the beginning. Um, anyway, quite a rabbit warren question, but uh, I hope that uh, was in the right direction for you then, Nolan.
0: And I know Nolan has a few more questions to ask, but I wanted to actually just dive down uh, a little bit deeper into that uh, part you mentioned about the the process in doing it and and how a million square foot building could be easier to design than a 1800 square foot uh, house. Uh, So I I want to get a little bit more information on the process of taking that million square foot building. And uh, just before we jump into that, uh, I saw Beverly joined in. Uh, Hello, Beverly. Neil joined in i uh, psyched to hear about industrial architecture. What a cool topic. I agree. I think this is a very exciting uh, topic to discuss. So I'd encourage you, if you have any questions for Willem or even for Nolan, uh, p- please feel free to put them in the chat and we'll try to get to as many as we can. Uh, but on that process, let's. can you walk me through a, a property owner coming to you with, call it 20 acres of land? And it's in an industrial park or it's earmarked for future industrial. What What's the process? And they come to you with a blank slate. And they just say, we want to maximize the site coverage. or We want to maximize the opportunity on here. We don't know what to build. What's the process of taking that raw land to an actual product?
1: Um if i gloss over any of the steps it's not because they're not important but it's because maybe we do it so often and and like you know we immerse ourselves in this in this market there's like it, it always starts with uh you know, like information like do you have do you know uh, the context that you're in do you understand like uh you know, this business park, it's sitting in the middle, is it in the south side of Edmonton, is it east, is it west, is it like, uh, you know, whatever it is, use the client that's talking to you, because he also has a certain type of product that he wants to lay out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, early on, you said that you'd like to talk about the kind of dirty keys concept that we that we throw around and like, you know, understanding. Uh, the value of the piece of land is is really important. Like there's a couple of industry standards, like a 20 acre site, you know, that you're probably going to be looking to put about 40% uh, coverage on it. Uh, you know, if it's a distribution type facility, you know that there's a whole bunch of requirements on the site that you have to account for. But, you know, it really matters where this piece sits. Um, you know, uh, we when you when you listen to the conversations in this uh, space, a lot of it is about timing. Right. Like, is mm-hmm. when do you want to like, where is this building? Because uh, approvals uh, are very, very different. If you're sitting in Vancouver, for instance, like there's a lot of stuff that you need to do very, very quickly uh, to get the process moving. So the emphasis might be on a different part, whereas in Edmonton, like, I'm happy to say that we're very fortunate to have a municipality that's very willing to work with you and, uh, and an authority that's uh, that's really there and present through uh, early communication consultations on things. Uh, and even in the outlining communities that we work in, uh, Leduc, Niscu, where it is, like, I mean, great people to work with. Like, uh, we cannot complain about, like, uh, timelines here. And I think that's a huge competitive adv- advantage for us. So, you know, uh, we're obviously a, a group of people that work across... Uh, the country. So Nolan, when you go to Toronto, you go to Vancouver, or you go in any of these major centers, like it could take you two, three years to get something approved that you would think is uh, kind of an eight-week process, you know, that year. And uh, what does that mean for return on that investment? And that could have a huge impact on what you decide to build as well speed to market uh you know you look at uh chad i've been listening to your your talks you talk about vacancy rates like in some of the major centers in in los angeles and things like that and so what is it that you're looking for are people looking to just land product and move it Uh, so really just getting into the context in a in a in a big way and the way that we do it is by just staying informed and the best way to stay informed is to stay in touch with people like yourself Um, You know, I'm allowed to say like Colliers, I think, does a great job of their analysis. Cushman Wakefield has got a very interesting approach to understanding sites and where the market is going. Uh, There's great reports on vacancy rates for different product types in the city. Um, So, you know, you use all of that kind of thinking when you come up with uh, the fact that maybe building a building that's deeper than 180 feet in depth in Edmonton in any part of the city, unless you've got a specific tenant in mind might in today's terms not be a good idea because the base sizes and the tenant sizes are not going to jive with what people are looking for and so you know so when we're doing these layouts people often think that ah you know these guys are drawing a box like how hard can it be to draw a box but it's 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 knowing what your client knows and what he doesn't know i'm not going to tell most of my clients about that stuff like they they know it i draw it and they go like oh well that's really good and then i'll get like sketches and markups back from them and say but Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you think about that? And so they know more about this business than we do in most instances. And so uh, when we start laying it out, it's that kind of get to know your client piece, know what's driving it, know what they want to do with it. Am I banging on too long about this, this topic or no, no, I I think that direction.
0: I think that that's key and it does uh, prompt a few more questions for me because you mentioned site coverage as an example that it could be 40%. Uh, so if, if it's okay with you, can I ask like some, some very specific questions about both those? Yeah. So what, what people are often neglect to take into account when they're looking at a property is all the setbacks that the municipality might have, uh, whether it's, it's uh, some landscaping or treat area or, or whatever it is. Uh, but that site coverage ratio has to take into account all the space that's required to get in the building, as well as perhaps any outside yard storage that they have, but also has to take into account any setbacks. Do, do you see, like, is 40% that magical number because it does allow the right amount of space to maneuver a uh, like a, a semi-tractor trailer um
1: it, you know this is kind of one of those where it, like dial like i always talk about dialects different people say the same stuff but they use different words or they use the di- same word to describe different things and you know for us we've got a term called due diligence uh, that we would use on a site like that would describe that initial zoning review and looking at like you know what would be allowed Uh, what kind of drainage is on the site. Like in a lot of these outlying communities, you would have cross lot drainage, right? You wouldn't have uh, the ability to tap into an underground stormwater management system, which impacts and reduces the size and, and whatever you can do there. So, you know, for us that due diligence is getting into understanding the zoning on the site, but also understanding the zoning on the abutting sites because on light industrial, that has an impact. Sometimes you've got zero setbacks between similar zonings and things like that. So it's important to understand. So we have a phase that's called due diligence. There's some overlaps because you wanna know environmental, you wanna have kind of a sense of the civil, the lay of the land and which way this thing is sloping and stuff like that. But in terms of uh, in terms of that due diligence and understanding it, it's based on experience and doing lots and lots of these buildings in those areas and knowing what to look for. But that's that's key. Before you put a pen to paper, uh, we pull the zoning, uh, we look at what information is available. Our clients provide us with real property reports as far as possible, any CAD outlines of the site, so we're not guessing about like you know initial sketches that we're doing because quite often. Those initial sketches are good enough to get us to a bulk product very, very quickly. So, yeah, a- absolutely, and and that has an impact. Where you are in the world has an impact. Like, you know, you will not be able to get the same density on a site in Nesquy as you would on a site in the benches and Westmont and Vancouver or like wherever else you might find yourself. City, city of Edmonton proper, yeah. very important piece of it.
0: Uh, so it, it, I, there was a question that came up uh, earlier. White, if you don't mind pulling that one up, because uh, I I think I still want to get some more insight from you on on like what the optimal layout can be, knowing that it is different. I I think every market will have some nuances, but there probably will be some commonalities on uh, a fifty-three foot trailer is the same fifty foot trailer, whether we're in Western Canada or in Florida. That trailer is going to be the same. So yeah. I still want to get some of your insights into like what the optimal uh marshaling area and and i really like that term that you used about the dialect on how different people call things different things but it's meant to, to imply the same thing uh so I, I i'll get to the loading one in a second but this was an interesting question that came up because this is right in your wheelhouse of, of how you're looking at a building is the optimal column grid layout and that's just the supporting columns that are gonna be in a warehouse. Uh, some buildings could be a clear span building where there's no interior columns, whereas the more traditional light industrial is going to have, uh, I, I guess I've seen anywhere from 40 to 55. Have you seen, uh, has that changed in modern standards? Is there like a number that you see more often? And and why, why can't there be 100 foot uh, column grids as opposed to that 55? Two part question there for you, I guess.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's beautiful. It's almost like uh, Nolan's question about the house, right? Like, who is it for? Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important to understand. What is the asset class that you're looking to service, right? Like, uh, where where do you like within light industrial? People talk about being diversified across retail, light industrial, like, and, and but you man, you can diversify just in light industrial these days if you look at all, you know, all the way down from what's the appropriate base size for a flex building versus. Uh, you know, a distribution building versus a showcase light industrial or, you know, in some cases, built to suit like it would it would vary. Like sometimes we pop a, the, the, the other piece that you're probably going to ask me about is going to be undersided uh, the joy sites and things like that on the market. Right. Like those are always hot topics because you are trying to manipulate the base size to get to that, to give you the best possible market penetration. Right. And there's some people that try and achieve that market penetration within a building. And then there are other groups that try and achieve that market penetration through a development, through a large master plan and different strategies. There's really good examples of all of those in in Edmonton itself, where, um, you know, some people would have a strategy where it's really I couldn't care about the size of the steel up above, but I really need a variable base size to be able to to lease or to rent or to sell, you know, there's a massive difference between condo and rental as or lease as well in this discussion. Um, and what people sometimes like, I think, you know, a lot of people would think it's about the steel size and, and what you able to span across that. Like, you know, anywhere like at 40 to 40 and 40 to 55, I think the steel pretty much stays the same. I'm I'm fortunate I work with a lot of really, really smart people. They'll be able to give you a definitive answer on that. But, um, yeah, like, so you're not really spending more money on spanning an extra five feet. Like, once you go beyond that 55 foot, and I think that's been the limitation, really, has been, like, saying, okay, it's not worth it. So what we're seeing is this term speed bays coming up, where they've got the ability to pull your 73-foot truck onto the back of the building, goes through the dock leveler and into the, into the loading bay. And they basically take the contents of the entire truck, put it there, and then it gets distributed through the building itself. So we've seen that kind of 60 foot depth uh, come in. So 60 by 55 on the back of these buildings. And then the rest of it tends to be in that like uh, 40 by 55, 40 by 50, uh, you know, once you understand like, you know, if your building's 180 feet deep or 210 feet deep, uh, you've got a base size that's either 10,000 or 12,000 or 13,000 in size. Are there tenants looking for those small base sizes? Are you breaking this building up into three, four, or five bays or two bays or whatever it is? Like there's a there's a lot of stuff, but for every question that you have for the client, there's a kind of a, a standard approach to deal with it because there's a standardized thing. like. The shipping container dictates right like how big is the shipping container and then everything kind of scales from from there and then you're racking and you're shelving and those layouts um you know the height comes into it and uh, we've seen with like the strangest things have influences on this like if you think about the height that people are building these days like 36 40 like uh, and like 42 48 it doesn't matter like it depends on where you're at um it's because the lighting has improved to such an extent that you can now light the surface and people can like who would have thought that you know lighting would have an impact on the height of the buildings like it takes a bit to kind of connect the dots there and there's a lot of things that happen in our industry that you change a little thing and it has such a big ripple effect on on a lot of things and give you opportunities that you didn't have no, i'm rambling on but it is a slow moving kind of business as well so everything doesn't catch up with it and, you know in some instances there was a good example where one of your um one of uh, your your interviewees uh, brought up the fact that you know they don't see anything over 16 feet uh these days because of insurance most of the people can't don't have the insurance to go higher on their racking. It, Again, who would have thought that that's going to be your limiting factor on on these things? And so, understanding the end user, where you want to go, what your target market is, where you are in the world, and uh, that really tells you at the end of the day what your base spacing wants to be. As architects, we can like engineers, I should say. I should give credit where credit is due. Those guys can span anything. Like. You know, no problem. I'll phone Steve O and Neil and Chris Lenson, and those guys will have a sketch of spanning. Like we just spanned the, the the Saskatchewan River here the other day with a white bridge. It's not a problem. We can span. It's just, are you willing? It's kind of that uh, conversation about. Um, you know, that investment, like if you go to that 60 feet and you do get that higher joist and you pay more for the envelope of your building to maintain those clear heights, are you really putting that money in the best possible place for a return on your investment? Is it driving the lease rate that you're looking for? And you know this is a 50 cent 30 cent game sometimes like in terms of lease rates a, a tenant will walk across the street if uh, if he can do better by 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 what you're offering so the margins are small but it it starts with understanding what your client is trying to achieve
0: yeah there's so much uh, great points that you made in there and, and uh, i would never have thought that lighting was an impediment to ceiling height it's it makes sense to me those old mercury halide bulbs just wouldn't have the the output uh, to actually light up uh something that far from the actual source so that makes a lot of sense to me that uh, the, the other point that you brought up interestingly enough i was walking through a warehouse this morning and it was 28 uh, foot ceilings or so, so in that area but coincidentally they only had their racking to 16 feet and i I pointed out to someone that that's because there' was no sprinklers in the building. and I, I'm sure that it varies from market to market. But in our market anyways, if you don't have sprinklers in the building, you can only get insurance for that first sixteen feet. so that that's really fascinating actually, uh, on on how everything, interconnects on this that's like you you're involved on the design but you still need to be incorporating all these different disciplines to make sure that everything's cohesive at the end of the day so i i found that that fascinating like just on the lighting topic and ceiling heights in general and even just the trade-off between cost and functionality you can have a clear span building like you said you could span an entire river if you want to but it's just whether that cost is worth uh worth what you're going to recuperate in terms of a lease rate so I, I i loved all of that that you said on there that, that resonated for me uh, pretty strongly uh i want to i saw a couple of questions come in in chat but before we jump to those uh no you, you have four questions i believe right
2: yeah i don't need to do all of them but i can just do one more right now
0: okay let's do one more we can save the last one if we have more time at the end too
2: Okay. So what is like the hardest project that you've ever done and like, why, why was it that hard?
1: Um, man, that's such a relative concept, right? Like about what's hard, um, challenging maybe, uh, like, look, the one thing Nolan is, uh, most architects that I know, um, are driven by the curiosity, the good ones. Anyway, uh, it, you could turn this into the most boring profession you've ever seen if you wanted to, right? But the people that I like to work with and the people that I enjoy spending time with always lead with curiosity, right? So my question to you would be, are you curious? Yeah. And, uh, and you know, like once you stay curious about things, um, whether it's hard or difficult, doesn't, doesn't really matter. Um, you know, it's, it's going to be fun. It's going to return. You're going to learn and you're going to do all of that stuff. So, you know, maybe, maybe the hardest projects are sometimes the one that you learn the most from, um, a big, you know, you go through these, uh, these experiences in your, in your career. And I'd say a big, uh, formative experience for me was leaving my home country and, uh, going and working in China and then leaving China and coming to Canada and, uh, you know, that's why, like, I, I, Tyler Dixon that I work with, he's so bored of me listening to me uh, to me talk about context all the time. But, um, but that move and moving to a different place and build like, there was fortunate to be involved in 108, 185. It always gets bigger. Every time I tell the story, it's bigger than it was the time before. So forgive me. I think it was 185 hectares of land that we redeveloped into park space, um, it was a beautiful, million square foot uh, mall, and uh, you know it was a flat farm. So we dug uh, rivers and made mountains and bought nurseries and traveled across China to buy rocks. And on weekends, because we lived there, my wife and I, who was actually the one that got me the gig, so shout out to her. Um, uh, you know, was uh, was. Placing, placing light fixtures on weekends in a park and like really experiencing and getting in touch with it and asking questions about like, well, I was taught that I had to learn or do it like this, but you do it differently um, explain and like going through that kind of cycle. So I'd say um, the reason I live and work in the private sector is because I, I, I I'm curious. I get bored very quickly, and I like the diversity of the projects I get to work on. And so, I just lump all of things, all of those projects together, and take the cop out, easy answer to you and say like, all of it is hard, but all of it has been enjoyable. Because if you're looking for an easy career or an easy job, uh, there's like, man, I could give you a list of better jobs. To have but i can't give you a list of better hobbies to have and so if you lead with that curiosity and you 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 want to learn and you're curious about people like that's a big big piece like sometimes the biggest challenge is not the project sometimes it's the people that you work with but it's also the biggest benefit so um You know, I don't want to offend any clients and tell you which projects are my most difficult projects because that's a fine line to walk. So I hope I've done that successfully and just say, stay curious.
0: Well, And and we did have a question come in for Nolan, too. So maybe that's a good time to ask uh, Nolan the question here. White, if you don't mind pulling it up, Uh, came in from. Yeah, sorry. I'm having a a problem with the
1: comments coming in. So I'm just going to bring it up and read it to him if that's okay.
0: Yep, absolutely.
1: Great. So, Nolan, here's the question. This question is for Nolan from Leadership to Wealth. Why do you want to be an architect and what do you find interesting about it?
2: I feel like it's just I love like cool buildings, tall skyscrapers. Like it's so fascinating to me how it all works and how it's all designed and goes up, which I would really like to be a part of designing those buildings, even if it's not a big skyscraper like the Burj Khalifa, it's, it would be so cool to be able to design buildings and do that for my job, which would also be like one of my favorite hobbies to do.
0: Awesome. Pretty Chad, do you, do you
1: want me to uh, bring, I, I for any, any more questions that you want me to bring up, for some reason, they're not coming into the chat. So um, you'll right. just... Tell me yeah, what they I, are and, and I can uh, read them yeah, if you
0: like. I see uh, Raphael joined in just to say, hi, uh, thanks for joining Raphael. Uh, Raphael has also got a podcast where he talks about commercial real estate and puts out a ton of great content. So I'd encourage you to check out his channel. And then uh, Afzal has put in a couple uh, questions as well. If we could pull those up. Uh, what does the process of repurposing an existing asset look like? Uh, can you give me an example how some of your clients have repurposed an existing value to increase the asset value? Great question
1: yeah <laughs> that's a that's a that's dense it packs a packs a punch yeah, there's Rather a lot than, in
2: there
0: <laughs>
1: yeah um well repurposing it's it's kind of like it sets up that fork in the road for us right like we always look at um greenfield brownfield and and then it kind of sets the approach when you when you're looking at uh, an existing asset. And I, I want to be careful because, again, there will be people listening to this that does this for a living, people that specialize in moving uh, moving build, buildings and repurposing them. So, um, you know, step one uh, for us is get the right people around the table. Get the information out there. Like, uh, bring, the, bring the smarts to it. Like, um, you know, throwing around that word of due diligence when you're uh, when you're a developer and you're not going through your due diligence, which should be, if if I think about it, your building conditions report, like an uh, environmental conditions assessment, and your 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 appraisal, um, then you're in for, for trouble, right? And like if you skip one of those steps, like you you're just increasing your risk. And so, which is another big piece of what we do is kind of risk management. Um, so start with building like a good visual of the story of the building you know if it's a light industrial i just like how do you like my backdrop right this used to be a place where they stored uh, beaver pelt back in the day and and today it's one of the nicest uh, studio spaces i've ever worked in um and it's uh, out of a light industrial so again like what is it uh what is the intended Purpose for it at the end of the day. I think a word that comes up a lot when you when you look at existing buildings is really understanding um, the usability of it. Right? Is it useful for what it was built for in today's terms? And if not, then what can we do with this thing? And uh, there's a lot of opportunities that are opening up for light industrial, like whether you're looking at um, you know this move to flex space or the move to uh, uh i don't i don't i just don't want to cover too much of, of stuff that you've got content on already chad but i'm I, like i feel like people might not think i think about these things if i don't mention like you know kind of last mile distribution and where is it like is this old building in the suburbs is it downtown is it like you know in an industrial neighborhood all those pieces are going to inform kind of the attitude that you take to it um you know uh, there's uh when when you're in different market in toronto there's a lot of developers that would say like wow this thing doesn't have the ceiling height in today's terms but let's chop the roof off and lift it up because the land's so valuable that your performer just makes sense and and you know building new and timelines and approvals and all those things that i mentioned earlier on kind of plays into it so um the the process of repurposing starts with i would say just understanding the lay of the land, understanding the context once again, going through the due diligence and then having a look and trying to understand work with a bunch of clever people, brokers, uh, property managers, like uh, um, you know, bringing the contractors to come and have a look at the building, make some holes in the building so you can understand what's in there that you can't see have a look at the infrastructure right? I'm not going to go through roof walls and like all of that that you've got a you've got to understand but um, sometimes one of the limitations that we might be running into in terms of upgrading buildings is going to be as simple as electrical supply um, there's nothing that tells us that uh, there's going to be a reduction on that what we can do is obviously we can bring in photovoltaics and you can look at different ways of augmenting the supply or you know whatever it is but you know, does your building have the right power supply? Like, uh, you know, are you going to like, do you use old mechanical systems where you're buying something that you can only uh, yeah, in any case, like, uh, and, you know, when you're looking at repurposing buildings, like when you when you think about like what Allied and First Capital and other people are doing to to old, like the brewery district that we moved from a, from a brewery into what it is today. Um, there's different considerations because you're also limited now. Is it a historical building? Is it a resource? Is it something that you want to protect? When well, you look at what we did with um, Clark's new, beautiful building, where we reclad the entire building from the outside, we kept the concrete in place to keep the, 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 the um, uh, embedded carbon uh, footprint of this thing low. We've got a heat sink that's in the envelope. There's just so many things to consider. And, uh, you know, uh, the world is moving, the the, the the money that's being invested and the money that's looking for places to invest are expe- expecting a greener kind of product. They're expecting uh, lower operation costs. Uh, they're expecting more durability and a longer view on the way that it's built. And I think all of those things need to factor into how you really approach and how you form the attitude towards an asset and then when you're done with it do you want to live at it or do you want to sell it and that also comes into it.
0: I, w- I want to dive into that uh, part you mentioned just about the environmental side uh, because ESG is, is clearly uh, important to a lot of companies right now beyond solar panels uh, and, and even if you could chat about solar panels I think that'd be interesting as well uh, just in terms of, of, of what they can provide power wise but what what are some of the things Uh, either uh, an existing building owner or somebody considering building new, what are some of the things that they can do uh, in that regard?
1: Yeah, it's almost like the racking conversation, right? Like (laughs) understand what your insurance is willing to support. Yeah. Um, you know a lot of the restrictions that we ran into early days when we started looking and putting photovoltaics on buildings, and it's an old conversation now. But like, it was it was fun to understand that actually it's the insurance company uh, of this building that might not like these things on the roof. Well, uh, how,
0: why so? Oh, it's just like uh, you know,
1: when you have uh, like a photovoltaics, are they not? They don't run tickety boo all the time, right? Like I can't believe I just used that term. But um, we'll use that they, in a
0: soundbite later.
1: Yeah, yeah, maybe. Hey, that'll be cool. You know, something to make my kids laugh. Uh, the no, it's 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 really important to understand like all of those impacts. So you go about and you say, okay, let's put photovoltaics on the roof. Like, so what is what's the stuff that happens? Like, you end up uh, beefing up the steel system. Uh, You can only put a certain type of uh, underlay based on uh, what the roofing association would allow you, right? Like, so you're limited. So there's escalation built into a decision like that. So your, your initial expense is is not neutral uh, ever and it's like you know and then you look at your insurance premiums you look at uh, talking to the authority that you're working with do they have the equipment to come and fight fires on your roof as an example when that mm-hmm. happens there's it, none of this makes it impossible it's not impossible it's just a, a little bit more complicated like uh um and uh, Yeah, so photovoltaics, we had a beautiful example, like uh, one of uh, our existing clients that actually connected with our Toronto studio, reached out to us and they said, they're really interesting in this piece of land. It's just outside of Calgary, like you know, the rates and the taxes like look really good. It's great location, great access uh, to market. But the problem is they can't get services in there for another two, three years, right? Mm -hmm. Just in terms of how it shakes out. And uh, they asked us to run a study for them to see what would it mean to have a warehouse that's not plugged in at all to anything Interesting. And uh, yeah, that was a beautiful exercise. It's a couple of years old now. So the information on it is that you don't get asked that question too often. So, what do you do with groundwater runoff? Like, it's one of the things, these things are beautiful water collectors, and your site is a beautiful water collector. But, you know, what do you do with that water? Do you dump it? Do you treat it? Do you bring it back into the building? And, you know, it's interesting when you start looking at the systems, um, you know, even bringing uh, bringing grey water uh, back to being able to use it in the the building and all of those things. We, We came up with a concept. We ran through an entire pricing study with uh, with a group of contractors, and uh, we gave the picture to the client, and they just at that stage went, "This does not make sense." And you know, so uh, with the team that we have here, uh, they're able to run. Like you asked me about what these things produce, so we model uh, those returns uh based on uh based on real uh, parameters that we put in uh we can uh, then uh, we've got this beautiful toggle like you put in and you change the, the the flow of things and then it says well if you change this over here you have to increase the flow of this or increase more of that and so these parametric tools that we can use to to really give a client a good snapshot uh Measurement and verification is always the place that that uh, we'd like to go because it's nice to talk about these things. But like um, the proof is in, in in the net result at the end of the day. So did it make a difference? Did it reduce? Um, you know, like uh, if you take Clark, for instance, there we predicted that uh, things are going to improve because we've upgraded the entire envelope for them uh, while keeping their tenants in place, which is important to know. Um, mm-hmm but uh they they're not running all the boilers that they used to run for instance so you know just by looking at the equipment that's running we know that there's already a 33 percent reduction in whatever they're doing without looking at the bills and looking at what they're paying through a really difficult time where there wasn't enough people in the building and all those things but i think it's it's fun to talk about all the, the aspects of what we can play with. But if you're not measuring it and you're not verifying that, you're not keeping track of that. Like we're never going to know whether we're actually making progress towards all these 2030 commitments, 2050 commitments and all these things that we're signing on to, to, to achieve.
0: The one thing that really stood out for me there, and it's a powerful reminder for me as well, is that really this, this, the whole process of commercial or industrial real estate is, is a very complex situation that involves a number of different experts all providing insight on it. And, and I, I always recommend everybody that you want to have a, a full team on your side. You're in, you have a better chance of winning the game if you have a full team on the field. Uh, but what, what even stu- stood out for me was just that insurance point about like solar panels on the roof. I would never have thought that you'd have to check with insurance. I never would have thought that you'd have to check with uh, uh, the, the fire department has the capacity to put out a fire. Uh, but that, that is a powerful reminder that uh, anytime you're doing anything of significance on the property, you want to be incorporating those different experts Whether it's like an architect like yourself, or you're talking to your insurance provider, you you make one mistake like that, and it can be incredibly costly. So I I appreciate you uh, bringing that up, because I I do think that that is a a powerful reminder uh, on that. Uh, And maybe what we could do, well, if we could jump over to Nolan, you could finish off your last question here uh, on what you had uh, as well.
2: Okay, so my last question is: What is the biggest project you have ever done, and how long did it take? Like, how long were you in the build, in your um office designing your this the project?
0: You're really curious. He's got, a lot, curious. Of, he's got like, a lot of zingers for you, Willem. Yeah,
1: yeah, but yeah, you're sending me down memory lane. You should have allowed me. I'm old. Like you should have allowed me to at least go and read about the stuff that I did. Right. <laughs> um. I think there's a couple of projects that stand out for me. Um, and you know, things that are, uh, one of the projects that I'm the proudest of to have been involved in is also one of my biggest failures, I would say, right? Like, and, and, uh, here it comes. I can't believe I'm going down that one. Like, uh, if you look at, uh, I don't know, have you ever been down uh, by the Kelly Ramsey building?
0: I have, I I'm sure no one would have, uh, but he wouldn't recognize it by the name.
1: Yeah, and so uh, it's this beautiful Enbridge uh, uh, office building that that we we had the good fortune of designing with Bangman and John Day and and people like that in the city. Like, and uh, I got involved in the early stages when they brought in an architect to look at the heritage piece, and we went through, and you just really got the sense of. Um, sense of what it was you uncovered like all these old buildings that were demolished and for me coming from a different part of the world it it was really kind of opened up uh, a bit of a different view on on Edmonton and just a bit more piqued my curiosity and uh, there was a building that was used to be referred to as the jewel of Edmonton that thing got knocked down it got turned into Swedish jewelers which was reface of another building it's just this mess of cladding and you know um i it became abundantly clear that this thing was moving in a direction where i was not the 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 right person for it which was really hard to understand and, and feel at the time but you know what like the lesson that i learned from that is like sometimes the best thing we can do is just get out of the way And it allowed me an opportunity to get out of my own way. And now when I walk past that building, it's even more beautiful because I got to meet uh, wonderful, bright people that that executed the floor. Like it depends on which side of the equation you sit on, but a beautiful building, like a first class building. The, the, The ground plane is beautifully integrated. If you look at like what they've done to the public realm and how it integrates and how it connects to like everything that's there. Um, it's a beautiful outcome. So it's probably one of the projects that I'm the proudest of. I wish I was the one holding the pen on it at the end of the day still. But um, your best projects doesn't have to be your projects, right? Like, uh, and, uh, and so it's those little things. And when you think about another one that I'm really proud of is the brewery district. You'll hear me talk about that thing for days. And, you know, there's no, uh, there's no denying the fact that my role in it was minimal. But the, the, the piece that was really fun and interesting was being able to be there and, and where, where something could be dropped to pick it up and connect the dots. And then at the end of the day, you stand back and not only have you got a beautiful project, but you also have a beautiful team and you've got a beautiful outcome. And, you know, that, that knocks the socks off any, any award that we can win for, a, you know, whatever building it is that we build for me personally. It's a very personal thing and, you know, and, uh, but that's kind of where I would go with that one. Are,
0: are there any projects that you see happening anywhere in the world right now that, that fascinate you or provide a source of inspiration?
1: Um, yeah, I, I, you know, um, inspiration like for people that are curious, uh, you don't have to really go and look for those things. I. I uh, my Uh, my mom gave me this nugget. Uh, She said like, uh, um, you know, every single problem we have in the world can be traced back to a distribution issue.
2: You know, like whether it's
1: water, whether it's education, whether it's wealth, whether it's like whatever, or, you know, and I'm going to say this, but like even toilet paper during some the horrible times of of human existence, right? Like, um, and and it's really interesting. And so for me, the thing that that piques my interest is like, you know, uh, I think just looking at uh, supply chains, the way that the world is moving and changing, is really fascinating in this light industrial space because it's going through more change than I think people like are willing to recognize. And, uh, you know, if you look at the amount of this work that's getting built out in the world, um we have to pay attention to it and uh, you know that's why i'm i'm really happy to participate in light industrial because it's such a large component of what's getting built um so in that light industrial space i think what uh, what oxford is doing in in uh, vancouver is really cool uh and uh, like we wish them the best and hope that it's successful you look at what Berlo just did in uh, in seattle and places like that multi-story what i'm talking about nolan is multi-story like kind of warehousing in that space Um, We know that we have clients that are looking at it in different parts of of the country for different reasons, mostly driven driven through land value and scarcity of, of land. But that's kind of fun in that space. And then if we look at, you know, uh, the advent of uh, of the way e-commerce is developing and you look at the sophistication of these buildings that are being constructed like almost that that conjures up this post-human like post-anthropocene kind of uh, view on the world of you know, what are we going to do when robots does everything kind of there's that piece that we need to understand and we need to come to terms with um so in the industrial space there is a lot to get excited about and and you know the variety in that Uh, we also get to work on on all ends of the distribution chain so not only does it deal with light industrial also ties into the way that retail relates to the humans these days like you know that experiential piece of the distribution network and then uh, you look at the other side like uh, where we do a lot of automotive work uh, like uh, uh, um, dealerships and things like that that again we don't talk about that much but it's, uh, it's kind of that shopfront warehouse component and it brings all of these things together in a very sophisticated way and, and what's got me the most excited about it is just how they are changing their attitude to the environment. Uh, and you know sometimes these guys are the ones with the biggest baggage to overcome. And so if you're looking for fun exercises and helping people think through how to change their portfolio, or how to work through, um, some of these issues that they have to deal with, it's hard not to get excited about that. And then I got into architecture because I wanted to design libraries and uh, because libraries have been very kind to me in my life. And uh, like uh, I've seen them benefit a lot of people. And so that was kind of what sucked me into this into this world. But then I realized that there's a lot of buildings that are maybe even more public uh than libraries themselves right that more people access and and that's kind of what's got me interested i think the the way that we're gearing things towards the human experience understanding that um, in light industrial is actually humans working in these buildings still and so what's the work environment what is uh, your developer's attitude towards uh, uh, staff retention and, and keeping uh, workers happy and retaining that valuable resource, which is soon becoming our most valuable resource in any industry you're in is, is the human, right? Like, and are we taking care of them and that? And, uh, you know, and then you've got crazy stuff happening. You see Zara, Deds company still like designing and they're building the most beautiful yachts. And like, you know, there's just tons to be excited about and get curious about, like, um, you know, just the uh, inspiration of bones.
0: Yeah, I, I that's so well said because I, I, I share your excitement about just how the potential that's out there, and how how much things can change and evolve and advance over time. Uh, it's never a dull day because there's always something new coming at us, and there's always something to look at or what's coming around the corner. So I I, I think that that was a, a great explanation uh, on that. Uh, there a question that came in from Will, and this might be the question that we end on as well. Uh, I, th- I think this is a great question. Uh, Will, thanks for joining in and for the question. Uh, what are the d- biggest design differences you? see between flex and distribution
1: um, apart from the size um, flex tends to be smaller it tends to be um, maybe located a bit closer there's a bit more of a shopfront approach to it uh, you know where that flexibility uh, whether you're looking at attracting the carpet guy or maybe the small business or if you look at what we did uh, with the Arctic, uh, where they've got squash courts in them, right? Like uh, uh, the flexibility, uh, flex and distribution, are, apart from like the way that I understand flex and the way I think about it, sometimes it's almost like uh, um, yeah, I'd hate to give just shout outs, but I think BD does a, uh, an incredible job on flex, for instance, in that market sector. They understand it really well. They've, they've got great market penetration. They, they they seem to be able to attract tenants very quickly and things like that. Um, but distribution, even at the distribution scale, there's a different way of looking at buildings. And so what we're seeing is a lot more clients actually looking at maybe building uh, what you would call like a cross-stock facility, uh, you know, with loading on either end. I don't know who's listening, so I don't know how much information is required there, but I'll just stay high level saying uh, you can have an incredibly deep building and maybe look at uh, chopping it into four small, smaller bays and, you know, take down an 800,000 square foot building in terms of four 200,000 square foot tenants, as an example. So is that a flex building? Uh, We did a building for Oxford at City View uh, that I think is one of the greatest examples of a scaled uh, flex building where, um, you know, at the end of the day, they fitted it up for office building. But you can take the office out and you're back into uh, what would be a bit more of a showcase or maybe even a distribution, depending on what you do uh, with it. But um, uh, flex and distribution really just speaks to market penetration. Like, where are you? Like, and, and uh, you know, the I can get into the, the you know, the underside of, of mezzanines, like with Flex, like the smaller Bay Flex, like it seems like the mezzanines make a difference to people. And then sometimes it's a hindrance to the deal and sometimes it benefits them. And, you know, distribution, deciding what kind of size of office you're going to build is, is important, like understanding that relationship. You don't want to overbuild, you don't want to over like underbuild and uh, yeah i don't know chad like it's it's a like you, we can carry on with that question for a long time but i think at the end of the day it just comes down to uh, intended use uh, usability what is it and what does the market want and do you know what that is
0: well, I might, uh, I might, uh, reach back out to you and try and do a part two on this with, uh, when Daryl doesn't have the hiccups anymore and maybe, maybe uh, later in the year or next year. Cause I, I do think that there's a lot of things that we could chat about still on this, but I, I really do value your knowledge and insights in this space because it's, you've already triggered a few things in my mind that, 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 that are, that are really key. So I, I want to wrap up, I'm very respectful of your time here, Villain, but, uh, just a couple quick notes, uh. Nolan, great job, buddy. Really good job asking those questions and answering them. And uh, we might have to try and get you in as an intern at Dialog one of these days. We'll uh, we'll have to look into that as an option when you're ready. But great job. Uh, And, Villain. we put some contact information for you, your LinkedIn and and Dialogues uh, in the chat. And encourage people just to reach out to you and uh, you're obviously a source of, of great information. So I really do appreciate you taking the time to jump on this and, and share your thoughts. Uh, I really, really value that and it means a lot to me, uh, especially uh, being so patient and, uh, and willing to answer the questions that Nolan had as well. It's, uh, it goes a long way and I really do thank you for that. Chad,
1: um, absolute pleasure, Nolan. Uh, good questions you made me. Your questions were harder than your dad's. Uh, thanks for that. <laughs> See, that's um, why
0: he's the brains behind my YouTube channel.
1: Yeah. Hey, listen, uh, we we live on 104. Our doors are always open. You're always willing to just come in um, and come and talk to us. There's a lot of really nice, talented people. Um, it's nice to be able to talk. I must just like you know, as I'm sitting here talking, I'm just constantly reminded of not forgetting about the team of people that actually make this happen, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and, and uh, you know, um, Nolan, as you look at your career, um, at the end of the day, like it boils down to getting to know the people. The, the different people make it like there are different people in different organizations. And what I found about this, this business is find the right people, find the people that you like working with. And uh, you'd most likely be successful because those mentors and those people are willing to guide you. They come from all different aspects, and you, if if you stay open-minded, like you're going to learn a lot. But yeah, just a shout out to the team here at Dialogue, who I'm fortunate to represent here today, Chad. And thanks for the questions. I look forward to talking to you a lot more. This was absolutely
0: fun. likewise. Well, th- thanks again, Willem. Have a great afternoon, and thanks everybody who tuned in.
2: Be well.